Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. My wife and I, uh, first time in Australia, so uh, really very much enjoying your hospitality, enjoying uh, the beauty of, of your country. So it's, yeah, it's been, it's been really great. Uh, yeah, so a little bit of background uh, from me so that you guys have somewhere to place me in the world. I, uh, I grew up in the Bible Belt of the United States of America in Arkansas. If you know Johnny Cash or Bill Clinton, it's uh, that, that small country place. And uh, grew up in a mega church, so like 7,000 people, Willow Creek Association, uh, Celebration Cell, if that means anything to you, so cell groups and homes. Um, good church, you know, really, really beautiful upbringing with, with Christian, uh, you know, family and, and lots of community. Uh, so that was kind of the background. My wife actually grew up something similar to that, uh, Dallas Seminary Bible Churches in, in Dallas, Texas. And uh, anyway, went to college, ended up going to seminary back in Dallas, at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, my wife and I were really praying and trying to understand what we were going to do with our life. We were interested in potentially being in, uh, in the marketplace and, and being in business. We were interested in, in vocational ministry. We were open to whatever God had. And eventually God directed us to church planting. And so it's a longer story. I uh, told my wife first, but then, then he told me. And uh, we, we entered in a journey of entering into a church plant residency uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then traveling up to Portland, Oregon to plant a church. And um, at the time, we were really influenced by Chester and Timmis and their book, Total Church. We had read Alan Hirsch's uh, books. We had read other missional things. And, but mostly had read the scriptures. And in fact, I had written my, my master's thesis on Jesus' use of informal contexts in discipleship. So anything that wasn't the synagogue, essentially, I wanted to understand what, how much of Jesus' discipleship happened not in the synagogue, not degrading the synagogue, acknowledging that he did do ministry in the synagogue, but I want to understand how much of it was in the flow of everyday life. And so that's, that was in my head at an early age. It was something I was kicking around and trying to understand. Uh, so we went up to Portland and we started a church of missional communities. So the first thing we did when we got there, we parachuted in, we didn't know a soul in the, in the area. And we just started networking, meeting people, casting vision, trying to gather at least initial four for one missional community. And uh, we actually, we, we didn't even call them missional communities at the time. We called them gospel communities kind of after, after total church. And we were thinking that way. Um, we then had some friends join us, another staff couple, Josh and Laurel Edelman. They actually came to Australia with Dave Miles and Todd Moore a few years ago, or at least Josh did. Um, and together we, we, we got going. The Edelmans then started a second missional community. Uh, we started a third missional community before we ever had a Sunday gathering. And then we began a monthly gathering. So we had three MCs, one gathering. We continued to work, continued to, to reach out to the community. And then eventually, you know, maybe four or five missional communities. And we added two gatherings a month. And then all the way up until I think six or seven missional communities that we went to weekly gatherings. So, we weren't anti-gathering, but we were in a context in, in Portland that is uh, very post-Christian, very antagonistic to the gospel, probably 2 to 4% evangelical, and we were in a very gritty, gritty neighborhood, and uh, people were just not coming to the Christian event any longer. Um, if, if invited, even to the most contextual indie rock church that you've ever seen, uh, which there are some of those in Portland for sure, uh, there's most people still didn't care, and they, they weren't showing up, and so we just knew in the context, and even from our own convictions about mission discipleship, we really needed to go and minister to people on their terms and on their turf, and so that's sort of how we landed, what we did, how, how it went, 
Um, somewhere in that, the Soma family, we, we discovered uh, the Soma church in Tacoma, discovered how like-minded we were with them, and, and, and the Soma family in North America began to formalize, and so we began to partner. I actually met Dave Miles shortly after that. He had come over from Australia. Um, others from, from Australia had come over, others from all over the world, Europe and other places as well. And uh, we just continue to be learning from one another and trying to understand what is a missional community and is this viable? Uh, is it viable in suburban contexts? You know, is it viable in rural contexts? Is it viable in other countries? Is it, uh, what, what is a missional community? And, and is it something that's inherently biblical, that's just a, a logical expression of what a New Testament church is? Or is it sort of a niche little overlay that maybe somebody came up with and it's just kind of the latest and greatest philosophy, okay? Uh, those, are, those are open questions uh, and, and we'll try to dialogue about that a bit today. But that's, that's context. Hopefully that helps you place me a bit in the world. Uh, my wife and I, another story, but we, we pushed really hard in church planting and five years into the church in Portland, we were pretty fried. We had some, some marital things going on, depression, other things happening. Uh, so we actually left ministry for a couple of years and, uh, and then just have recently, the last 18 months, been asked to, to come back onto a staff in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area and to uh, serve as a director of the Soma Family of Churches, which is now about 35 churches in, in North America. So do that about three days a week and, and really attend to three things in that. So soul care of, of leaders and couples, uh, just their health, their communion with Jesus, strengthening churches, churches strengthening one another within the, the Soma Family. And then sending, so planning, uh, you know, raising up church planters to go and plant new churches and mission communities uh, wherever God's calling folks. And so that's sort of where we are uh, right now. Uh, it's interesting, Portland was a very urban context, probably the most well-suited uh, city in the world maybe for, uh, for mission communities in some way. Walkable, bikeable communities of about 10 minutes. Nobody wants to get in the car, nobody wants to do anything. So you're always in, with the same people. And then now we're in a very suburban context. So everybody kind of goes into their garage, shuts the garage door, high fences, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So we kind of seeing both contexts. So we'll maybe talk a little bit about that uh, tonight or even tomorrow night as we have, as have opportunity. Um, I kind of gave, gave it away a bit when I said that, you know, my, what my master's thesis was about. Um, you know, for whatever reason, early on in my spiritual journey, I began to be very, very interested in the idea of discipleship. Uh, there was, I, I had grown up in the church. I was one of those kids that kind of could play the game. I knew the Bible verses. I could answer questions. I could kind of do that thing. But it wasn't until a guy named Derek, my junior year in, in high school, began to really pursue me and to, to really ask hard questions about my own life and about what I believed and about where I was that I actually started to experience God. And I actually started to walk with God, I feel, and, um, and actually started to grow as a Christian. And so I, I was deeply appreciative of his ministry. I was, I, I was convic you know, convinced that, that uh, discipleship, that the real work of getting into face, you know, life on life with one another was essential if people were going to grow in Christ and grow to maturity. And so I started reading a lot about discipleship. I was always thinking about discipleship. And in fact, I, I was convinced for a season that the parachurches were really the folks that were doing discipleship. That, the, you know, the, the navigators, one-on-one, -on -one, that's really what, what, what needs to happen. And the church has lost it. Like the church is, they're too apathetic or they're too traditional or they're, they're just too ill-focused. And so they're not really making disciples. They're just doing Sunday services. And so I was, I was all zoomed in on 
on this one-on-one discipleship idea and just going deep with a few guys and really trying to help them grow. And that was really where I was at. And, and slowly, over time, as I began to discover from the scriptures that God's intent for the church was, was deeply missional, I started realizing it wasn't that the church itself was somehow a broken entity unto discipleship or unto mission of the world. It was just that churches weren't, in fact, being faithful unto the mandate that was really clear in the scriptures. Um, and in other ways, I realized the churches were better than I understood. That there, was, there were things that were happening along the way that I didn't count as discipleship that were actually forming me in Christ. And, and God was showing me a more robust understanding. But at any rate, um, I've been on this journey to understand what a disciple is. And I, and I think we need to start there tonight because more than anything else, if we don't define what a disciple is and, what, and even what a mature disciple is, then we really don't know if we're actually faithful as the church in creating what Jesus asked us to be about in the world. Okay, and so if everyone in the room here had a different definition for what a disciple is or a different definition of what a mature disciple is, in some ways it wouldn't even matter if we agreed or disagreed about the nature and function of the church and about missional communities because we're, we have a different endpoint anyway. Uh, we have a different bar we're aiming at, a different target altogether. And so uh, I think it's, it's really important to to open the text and to just for a moment, even briefly, to remind ourselves of some of the just core aspects of what a disciple is. Uh, we know that at the end of Jesus' ministry, after living and walking in all of life with, with 12 men and, and with uh, 70 others, sometimes 120, 120 folks, that he was uh, sharing his life. He called them disciples. And then at the end, he said to to these folks to go and do likewise. Uh, we'll, we'll read a very familiar passage in Matthew 28, say verse 18. It said, And Jesus came up and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, we read that. We also can go to Paul's missionary statement in, in Colossians 1.28, where he says that he proclaims Christ, okay, and he teaches everyone, meaning every, every disciple, every person he encounters, he teaches everyone, and he admonishes everyone so that he may present everyone complete in Christ. Okay, so you see his vision. His vision is preach Christ, so that everyone becomes mature and complete in Christ. Okay? Even, even our, our familiar verse of, of Romans 8.28, which talks about God using all things together for good, right? To those who love Him or call according to His purpose, is followed up by you know, Romans 8.29, which says that the, the good thing that He was up to is to predestine them to be conformed to the image of the Son. Okay? And so the thing that, that God is doing in the world with discipleship is that He's revealing Himself. As, as he's presented, okay? As people like Paul or people like you and me put up Christ and clearly proclaim who he is, person and his work, his life, death, and resurrection, people are drawn to him in faith. People come to know him. And as they come to know him, they're taught to obey all that he commanded, okay? In all of life. And ultimately, as this is happening, they're being changed, okay? They're being conformed into the image of, of the Son and, and even being remade into humanity as it was intended in the beginning, you know, in perfect fellowship with the Father, right? In right relationship with one another, 
okay? Living the life that pleases God and honors God and, and, and really is a blessing unto all those who, who we encounter. And so we think about discipleship and mature discipleship. We're really talking about people who look a lot like Jesus um, in mature love, okay? And even say that, that you know, First uh, Timothy 1.5 says that the goal of our instruction, okay, the, the very end point, we'll know we've, we've really instructed disciples, we'll know we've really done the work when our people are characterized by mature love, okay? They look like Jesus in love. They live selfless lives for the benefit of others. That's the, the primary MO of their life. There's this deep abiding love for God. There's this deep love for others. And that's, that's sort of what these people are about in maturity. And so these are, these are some of the targets. These are some of the end games that the church is after that, that we're commanded to be about from King Jesus. And so we even talk about mission communities. We have to have that in the fore. We have to have that in mind, that that's what is going to be produced. And then we have to back up and say, are the, the forms and the ways we're going about being the church actually producing that kind of a disciple and and the kind of disciple like that who can reproduce themselves to make other disciples like that okay and if at any point we look out after let's say five years or seven years of a faithful disciple in one of our churches doing all the things that are asked to do by the leadership but yet they're still not becoming that right for whatever reason we do have to back the truck up and say what went wrong Okay? And, and, and rather than be deeply committed to our forms or our traditions or some of the things that we've done in the past, we really have to be honest and say, hey, somewhere we missed a turn. Okay? Somewhere along the way, the things we thought and had hoped would lead to these mature disciples marked by mature love and look like Jesus and can make other disciples, somehow it's not happening. Okay? We've got to understand why. We've got to understand what is required and, and what do the scriptures say that would, would help inform, perhaps, another way of being more faithful as the church unto this end goal. Okay? And so if, if we say anything about mission communities, we want to say that the, the, the heart behind mission communities, the whole goal of mission communities is not to be innovative. It's not to be uh, edgy. It's not to try something new. It's really an attempt to be faithful unto the scriptures, to what it, we, we believe the New Testament is calling all churches and all places to be, whether they're called mission communities or not, some of these core fidelities, some of the core functions are going to have to be expressed somehow in whatever way we, we choose to, to form and be the church if we're going to see mature disciples. And so that's, that's really the heart behind that. And so to begin that, we really begin in three really simple stages. They're simple but profound. Uh, we'll talk about gospel, and we'll talk about community, and then we'll talk about mission. But to do gospel, uh, we often begin with four questions. So the four questions are fairly straightforward. As you know, the first phrase of the Bible is, in the beginning, God. Okay? Like Moby Dick begins, call me Ishmael, and introduces the first character, the primary character of the, of the book. The Bible's the same way. It begins introducing the main character. The main character is God. And so our theology begins with God. Okay, and so we ask the question, who is God? Okay, that is the starting point of missional communities. That's the, the main idea of missional communities. Uh, we were created for God, and sin is separated from us from God and Christ, and his work is restoring us back to God, and we will spend all of eternity enjoying God. And so the main idea of missional communities is God. Okay, it doesn't get more central than that. And then we want to ask the question, um, what has he done? So 
we understand God, we also want to understand what has he done. Because the activity of God actually reveals even more of the character of God and also gives rise to the people of God. So we come to then identity. Who are we? This is central. This is core of humanity. Key understandings of who we actually are as his people, as the church. And then we want to get to how do we live? Now, most people come to trainings like this, and, and we really kind of want to speed forward to this column. We understand how this hits the road. We understand how do we live in the missional community? How does this work out in the flesh? But you really can't understand the missional community and the heart behind the missional community without starting and working through the nature and character of God, his activity in the world, and the identity of the church as it's talked about in the New Testament. And then you get to forms, then you get to some of the outworkings and some of the activities of the church, okay? So this is what, what we look at. Um, we talk about who is God. Uh, let's start with, really quickly, um, who is God in Genesis 1 to, to 2? I mean, that's all you knew about the character of God. You've never read the book before. Who, who is God? He's a creator. And yeah, what is he doing? What's he doing? It's redundant. I mean, yeah, it's probably too obvious, but what's, what's the creator doing? Creating. Yeah. Okay. And, and who are we? Yeah, so we're creation. And what kind of creation? What, what was that? A creature, yeah. Yeah. Good. He created us good. Yeah, what else is it said about us? What's that? Image bears, so there's there's image bears. Okay, and how are we called to live? The first humans in this idyllic environment, how are they called to live? What's that? Like God? Yeah, absolutely. Fruitful? Yeah. What else? Fruitful and multiply, so they're supposed to make more humans. Yeah, what else? There's in relationships, they're walking with God in the cool of the evening, so they're, they're to live relationally with one another and God. What else? Yeah, there's authority, or this idea of dominion, right? They exercise authority and dominion over the other creatures and the creation itself. And so, yeah, we might call that dominion. Okay, so this is God's plan for the world. This is what he's up to. But what we see immediately in, in Genesis 3 is that the serpent comes to, to Eve with Adam present and, and, and basically introduces a new idea, a new activity that they could engage in, which is in direct disobedience to the thing that God had asked them not to do, which is to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what do they do? Yeah, they, they eat, right? They eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Why? What does what Satan tell them will happen? Who will they become if they do that? Like God, right? Wait a minute. Weren't they already like God? Created in his image, but they, 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 they were told essentially they needed to take a new activity to become something that God had already said they were like. What did that say about what God had already done? The sufficiency of his creation before that? Was it good enough? Was it good enough? So it's this idea of insufficiency. What does that say about God? A God that would put you into an environment what they did with less than what they needed. What's that? It was imperfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's imperfect, or he's not good. You know, he's, he's not. He's holding out. 
right? The, the enemy's convinced that, that somehow God hasn't given him everything, that he's holding out, okay? And so we think about humanity, and we think about the way the scriptures work. We really see that God is the centerpiece. He's the first mover, and his, his work forms his people. And his, his people live in accordance with his design and intent. But sin is a direct inversion of God's intent, all the way back to a corrupted view of God, okay? And we live this way. We live with distorted identity. We live believing that God hasn't done enough unto God's goodness being insufficient. And so this is some of the brokenness of the world as we see it emerge in the scriptures. And we actually believe that in the gospel, God is doing a work to, to reverse this again and to get the order right and to begin again with himself and to, to work it back. And so we'll actually look at that. We think about the work of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is this child who comes, uh, you know, in this season and that we celebrate? Who, who, is, who is Jesus? Is that? Sorry, I'm having trouble hearing you the fan. The Redeemer, absolutely. Yeah, so he came to seek, yeah, and to save his Redeemer. Okay, and what's he doing? What's the activity of Jesus in the world? Yeah, it's not a trick question. Yeah, he's restoring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so he's reconciling us to God again. Yeah, so this idea of a Redeemer, you know, reconciling. Okay? And who do we become in light of this redeeming God coming for us, reconciling us to God? Who do we become? Restored? Yeah? Yeah. Sons and daughters. Yeah. So there's this idea of adoption. So there's there's sons and daughters in light of his work. It's probably not spelled correctly, but you you trust me there. Uh, that's the English spelling. I'm sorry, the, the, the American English spelling. Um, yeah, so then how do we live in light of this redeeming, reconciling God? He's adopted us into his family. How, how do we then live? What's that? Sorry. Yeah, you live out your identity every day. So you live as God's child in relationship with him. Maybe you're back to this relationship, walking with him, communing with him. Yeah, absolutely. So you live in, you know, relationally again with God. That's been restored. Yeah. Yeah. We saw the Great Commission. We live in obedience to this one who's purchased us uh, as a bond servant. We'll go through some other aspects of this, but really, we're, when, we, when we talk about missional communities, we really want to start with God and we want to move in the direction the scriptures work. We want to understand ourselves and the church in light of God and his activity in the world. And so I want to show you really the core basis of, of missional community through this same grid. We, we use this. To, to teach and to train because we feel like more than anything else it helps us to really do one really primary thing which is to show that the church is not a set of activities the church is not a building uh, the church is uh, you know nothing if it's not a new people created in Christ Jesus uh, as new creation um, and that are really that that people no matter where they find themselves so in other words the church doesn't cease to be the church when it leaves a building like this on Sunday. That, that, this, that the church is, is an identity that is true of us wherever we find ourselves. 
Okay? And so it's essential if we're going to teach people to obey Jesus in all things and to obey him in all of life, to really ground people in their new identity in light of Christ's work. And so what we do with that, um, you, you'll see in um, really in the Great Commission, as we saw, that we're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we, this may be new to some of us because we don't always think of baptism this way. Uh, but in Christ's own baptism, right, in Matthew 3 or Luke 3, you see that he's being baptized, but he's also being named or identified, right? His, his identity is being proclaimed. So the father sees him and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay? So similar to our, our baptism, we're baptized. There's this naming ceremony thing that's happening. Okay? It's a, it's a renaming. Okay? And I think, that's, I think that's significant in light of new creation. That, that God wants it to be clear that we're now, we have a new identity as those who have been reconciled to God, those who've been saved, those who've been, you know, bought with a price and adopted into the family, and that this identity is something that is to shape our entire life or our new life in Christ. And so we really want to work through that identity to make sure that we understand the basic sort of identity of the church. This is really important, um, and I found this to have probably more utility than just about anything else. And, and Soma is by no means the only ministry teaching people identity in Christ. Uh, there's so many different veins, so many different streams that have discovered really how essential it is for, for Christians to really know and understand who they are in light of Jesus Christ. And, and, and not to emphasize merely Christian doing, right? That, that somehow our doing in this column would give us identity, which tip, is typically... Uh, starting with the serpent, but continuing on to today, is still a really dominant way that people get after identity. Okay? Sadly, the second couple, we usually introduce ourselves and say, hey, I'm Duke, hey, I'm Pete, and then the next question is, what do you do? Right? We're trying to understand each other's identity in light of our doing. Okay? That's, that's the primary default of, at least in the West. Okay? I've, I've never lived in the East, but in most places, that's still the way people think about themselves. Okay? And that's why people, when they lose their job, or they become you know, a, a stay-at-home mom becomes an empty nester, or, or someone else has a significant change, uh, that they, their identity crisis, right? When you can't do the thing that you've always been doing, you start to say, who am I? Who am I when I'm not doing, okay? That's, that's Satan's work, actually. That's an inversion of identity. It's an, that's an identity built on human doing, when in fact, our identity comes from who made us. And in whose image we've been made, okay? And in light of Christ's work, our identity comes from the, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to do anything in the church, we should work very, very hard at teaching people who they are in light of God and his work, okay? So that's what we do. And, and it really a gospel community is built around this idea. And so we talk about being baptized into the name of the Father, okay? We're baptized in the name of the Father, we're a new creation. What does that make us? <coughs> Sons and daughters, right? Yeah. For those of you who like, um, you know, statistics and footnotes and backup for what I'm saying, um, Paul cites that there, well, not Paul, others have noted that Paul has 277 references to sons, daughters, family, inheritance, all manner of metaphor that all get after this idea that if God is our Father, that makes us a kind of new people. That makes us sons and daughters. And if we're sons and daughters and we have the same Father with one another, 
We're, we're siblings, right? We're brothers used more than any other word in the, in, the, in the New Testament to describe a Christian. And it's not a pejorative term, okay? That's not, hey man, what up mate? You know, it's not something that you just casually throw out. It's, it's an actual metaphor that's meant to embody all kinds of theological truth. Okay, so when we say brother, we're saying you and me share the same father for all of eternity. You've been adopted in the same family. Okay? Which means we have this primary relationship with one another that will endure forever. Okay? So it's a big deal that we understand that really the church is a family. Okay? This is our idea. This is something we came up with. It's not new. In fact, it's as old as the New Testament. And it's clearly uh, something that, that comes up again and again and again as, as, the, as the scriptures talk about Christian identity and who we, who we actually are. And then we talk about being baptized into the name of the Son. Who is the Son? Okay, we think of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Who, who is he? What's, what are some of his, his aspects as we think about his person and his work? Good. He is good, absolutely. He said the Word. Oh, the Word? Okay, yeah, he is the Word. Yeah, absolutely, Word made flesh. Yes. Now, what else? Even thinking about Old Testament prophecies, you know, what, what was he the fulfillment of? Who, who is he in, the, in sort of that, that sense? Yeah, he's the son? Messiah. Absolutely. So he's the Messiah. Sorry the fans are, are kind of killing me from hearing you guys. Yeah, so he's the Messiah. He's this promised king in the line of David, right? Who's, who was foretold and who came, okay? And so if he's the, if he's the king, if he's the son king, Look at Isaiah 9. If he's this baby given to us, who's going to become king on, and ruling forever on David's throne, who does that make us? Yeah, the new, we could be the new Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Brothers of the king. What would you say? Brothers and sisters of the king. Brothers and sisters of the king. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How does Paul identify himself at some of the start of his letters as he's thinking about? Kingdom and thinking about the king. Bond servant, right? So if there's a king, then there are subjects, right? There are those bond servants, those who've been bought by a Christ and have a king, and now they, now they serve a lord and a new king. And so if, if Jesus is king, then really we're servants. This is again Paul's identity statement he's, he's using uh, over and over as a primary identification as he begins his letters to the churches. Okay. Now we think about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has lots of lots of roles, right? The Holy Spirit's a comforter. The Holy Spirit's a, a counselor. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a giver of gifts unto the building up of the church. Uh, but how's the Holy Spirit talked about in the Book of Acts? Why, why are the disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes to receive power? Yeah. The, the church isn't even supposed to go on mission until the Holy Spirit comes. They're supposed to go and just sit and wait. They're actually called to inactivity for a very, very short time until the Holy Spirit comes. But when the Holy Spirit comes, Acts 1.8 says, When you receive power, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And many commentaries have shown, essentially, that the book of Acts is just an outworking of that very geographical reality, Right? That that's what's happened, whether through persecution or strategy or otherwise, the church is being moved out from a concentric, yeah, almost in concentric circles to reach more and more of the Roman Empire as witnesses who bear, you know, bear witness to Christ. 
Um, what I love about the word witness is that you can't unbecome a witness, right? It's, it, it really is an identity, right? If we were all standing on a corner afterwards and we saw, you know, a huge car wreck, um, there's really nothing we could do to unsee the car wreck, right? We just are witnesses. It's like being a witness happens to you, you know? Um, you didn't choose to be it, but if, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you've really seen Christ and you've really seen his, who he is and his beauty and his sufficiency and you've seen his work in the, in the cross and what it's done for you. You can't unsee that or unknow that. Now, you can refuse to testify, okay? You try to go in a witness protection program. You can try to hide out, but you can't actually not be a witness to his grace, okay? So it's, it really is an identity statement um, that's talked about. And so really when we talk about mission community, we're trying to look at these identities. And, and I'll acknowledge there are other identities in the scriptures, right? There's, there are saints which speak to our holiness, right? We've been made pure, so we can approach it, a pure and holy God. Okay? There, there are other things that are, that, are, that are identity statements, but we, we specifically look at that baptism and we say, this Trinitarian identity, who are we in light of the work of Christ, and how should that inform the way that we go forward as the church? And so, we, real quickly, as we define a missional community, say MC, we really call it a family of missionary, you can call it witnesses if you want, a family of missionary servants sent, right? John 17, Jesus said, as the Father sends me, so I send you. And then he brings the Spirit out on them, doesn't he? Like the, the, the disciples get like a, a small down payment first to the Spirit as, in light of the sending nature of God. So the family of missionary servants sent to make disciples. Sometimes we say that make disciples because that makes it clear that there's movement to it. That a, a mature disciple will be able to make another mature disciple in community. Uh, disciples that make disciples in the everyday. Okay? This is important on two levels because Jesus is always Lord and because we are who we are and our identity goes with us. Sunday to Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday and throughout all of life. And Jesus said, teaching them to command all, you know, teaching to obey all I've commanded you, which really encompasses all of life. If you read, you know, Ephesians, it's talking about how husbands and wives should relate and how parents and children should relate and how slave and master or employee employee employer should work. All the aspects of life, how this is supposed to be worked out. Okay? And it happens all the time. Jesus is interested in your whole life. He's interested in people who display his character and his kingdom in every aspect. And so, really, when we're talking about mission communities, we're just saying that we're a family of missionary servants sent to make disciples that make disciples in the everyday. Now, if, if SOMAS has an emphasis, and I think every movement does, I mean, we can be completely honest with some of the things we're, we're trying to camp out on. We're very much trying to camp out on gospel, gospel centrality. The idea that let's begin with God, let's look long at Jesus, let's look long at Jesus' work and see how that makes a new people, a new creation, and who is that people and how are that people to live. And then you'd have to say that we're very much trying to do justice to the, the old reformed doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, right? That every single believer has been endowed with the Holy Spirit and has work that God prepared in advance for them to do, okay? So we really don't like 
the, the, the clergy lay divide, really don't like the secular sacred divide, really not a fan of this idea that somehow we can make all the disciples as mature as they are intended to be in an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Okay, we just really don't see it in the scriptures. My master's thesis, I won't, won't read it to you, I won't bore you, um, but, but it, it did show that the vast majority of Jesus' ministry actually happens on the way. Okay? The reason he's talking about a vineyard is because he's walking by a vineyard. Right? The reason he's talking about all sorts of agricultural metaphors is he's out in life with disciples, on journeys, at tables with sinners, at tables with all kinds of people. Right? And he's making disciples to the flow of everyday life. Okay? And if we're going to teach people how to be good parents, we're going to have to be with them as they're parenting. We're going to teach people how to be good employees. We're going to have to have some knowledge of their work life. We're going to teach them how to vacation well, how to, how to parent their children, how to be a good neighbor. That's going to have to happen in the real places where those things happen. Or otherwise, we really succumb to an idea that humans are basically thinking things, and if we'll just pour the right content in at the training once a week, they'll just be able to go and do. They'll be able to apply all of it seamlessly into the real stuff. But, but the problem is, as we all know, uh, the church for a long time, has, has been camping out on this idea of cognitive discipleship. This idea that if we just teach through the right content, disciples will just come out on the other side, and they'll be mature, and they'll be able to make disciples, and it'll all go great. Uh, but the reality is it, it hasn't gone that way. Um, that, that it takes actually more than that. And I'll give you a grid for, for discipleship. I was, I was talking with a, a practitioner from the Anglican Church today, um, and I was really encouraged to hear uh, what he said about this. And I, and I want to say it with uh, some honesty, that if these variables are true in another movement, I think they're probably making disciples. Okay? So it's not Soma. Soma doesn't have any kind of corner on the ability to make disciples. But I do think there's some key components that have to be in place if you're going to see disciples rise up. And so he said, no, no, I know this other movement, and they're doing all the same things. They do it a totally different way, and they call it totally different things, but they have the elements in place. And guess what? They're making disciples, and those disciples can make disciples. And so I'll tell you what they are. They're, they're kind of already here. But I'll, I'll frame it in a slightly different way, uh, just for, for our purposes. I, I typically do it with a four-legged stool. So you think about a stool that you sit on and four legs. So if this is discipleship, you've absolutely got to have gospel, right? It's impossible to have a disciple without the gospel. <laughs> because a disciple is one who has been reconciled to God, who knows God, who's trusted in the work of Jesus, and is now following him in all of life. You've got to have the gospel and really the counsel of Scripture, right? And Paul says, you know, he was faithful to, in Ephesus. He's like, I didn't neglect to really to teach you anything. From house to house and in the synagogue, I taught the whole counsel of Scripture. So it's, it's the gospel. It's really the deposit, whatever that was, kind of the core teaching that's essential for, for people to know God and understand what he's revealed, okay? So the Scriptures. Right? The gospel, you've absolutely got to have community. I say this all the time. The church, or sorry, Christianity is an Eastern religion. Right? Started in the East. Every metaphor in the New Testament is communal in nature. It's not individualistic. The idea that someone could be on a mountaintop, a mountaintop with an iPod listening to a sermon all by themselves and be considered a faithful Christian is completely foreign to the New Testament. In fact, all the ways that a, new, a, a Christian is intended to grow happen in community with the spirit-empowered people of God together in all of life, building one another up into the head who is Christ, to use the body metaphor. We want to use the building metaphor. There's Christ as the cornerstone, and each block properly fitted together is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, over and over, 
We have communal metaphors to describe the reality of the church. And if, if anything's happened in the West, and this is the U.S., and I've heard from some of my, my friends, brothers here, sisters here, that it's happened here as well, is that we have seen Christianity hijacked with a radical individualism that somehow imagines you could be a faithful Christian by sitting in relative anonymity in a church service and going away and never fellowshiping a Christian and living a life kind of in relative isolation and somehow grow up to be a mature disciple, right? It's just, the Apostle Paul would just find that incredibly foreign. It, just wouldn't, it would just strike him as it's very, very odd uh, and, and, and impossible, okay? So it's a communal faith. And so you absolutely have to have community in order to, to see disciples made. It's, it's the very design of the church. It's God's intent for how we grow to maturity. And then with that, you have to have mission. This idea of the Great Commission. Gospel communities without mission over time, and I've, I've seen some of them that have been together for 12 years, 8 years, become very codependent, funky. They become weird, actually. Uh, when a group doesn't actually have a mission to be on together, they start to just kind of look in at each other, get bugged by each other, just start to I don't know, need each other in, in weird ways, and it's not healthy, but you find a, a community that actually has a mission, and they're galvanized in a new way. There's a, there's a totally new depth of fellowship that actually happens, and, and I think we talked about today, what I absolutely love, um, yeah, it was Glenn Decker, so I'll just give him credit, he's, let's footnote him, he, he shared this with me, but I think he's brilliant. He said, do you know the origin of the biker gangs, and a lot of them in the U.S., I don't know if there's biker gangs in Aussie, are there any, any biker gangs here? Yeah, guys on Harleys and leather jackets, hot. Well, he said that, you know, the origin of that was really from World War II. These guys were in bombers together, and they were getting shot at, and they were getting killed, and they felt like they were really fighting a good fight to overthrow Hitler and save Poland and Jews. And they felt like this was a noble fight, it was a good fight, but they were in it together, and people were trying to kill them. And, and they had, what happened, they had a really clear mission, and an important mission they believed in. And they had deep fellowship, and they had to support one another, because they were going to die otherwise. But what happened is they came back, and normal civilian life was so lame, and they had no collective mission, and they, it's like, and they had no fellowship with other dudes, right, or other mates. It was like, man, now we're just kind of not doing much, just by ourselves. This is kind of boring. So they're like, we've got to find something to be about, some fraternal reality, some way of connecting, something that we do that like gives us back that fellowship that we enjoyed when we had a mission. If I've seen anything in, in nine years of leading missional communities is that having a mission will do more to bring great and beautiful fellowship in the church than just about anything else. Okay? Having something you're actually working on that matters will do more to create Christian community, meaningful connection, just about anything else. And the other thing that I'll say that is absolutely essential is accountability. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, size is the great depersonalizer of the church. You guys make orange juice from concentrate? You used to have the frozen orange juice from the grocery store that, you know what I'm talking about? Is this just an American thing? No, some women nodded. They know what I'm talking about. You go to the freezer section and you get the orange juice that comes in a little slushy little can, right? And you drop it into the pitcher. Has anybody done this before? This won't work if you guys have never seen this. We used to get it here. Okay, we used to be able to get it here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, in the U.S., you just have to go with me. It's, it's weird, but you can buy orange juice and concentrate, right? You can buy it in the freezer section, you pull it out. It's just this weird slushy, it's like the size of a canned food section. You drop it in the pitcher, and it tells you how many cupfuls of water you then add, and you stir it all together, and it becomes orange juice, okay? Okay, well, size is the great depersonalizer of orange juice. If you, can, if you drop that into a huge vat, you know, 100 gallons of water, 
uh, it's a pretty diluted reality, right? You're not going to probably taste the orange juice, right? Same is true in Christian accountability. You drop a Christian into a sea of a thousand people, nameless, faceless, doesn't have much accountability, you're not going to see the potency of somebody who's able to obey all Christ has commanded. You know, someone said it this way, this thing is brilliant. Um, you know, all you know is that they're not sleeping around on Sunday morning for an hour and a half. <laughs> That's all you really know. Um, you know, during the Sunday service, they're not sleeping with anybody. We're, we're pretty sure about that. The rest of the week, we have no idea, right? They're not looking at porn on their phone while they're in the church church. We, we, we've got that little hour and a half covered, okay? But in all of life, we don't know. In a sea of people without accountability, we have no idea who people are, okay? We live so much, so much duplicity, we live in all kinds of ways, and nobody's zoomed in enough to speak the truth in love and to invite them to Jesus who is better, okay? So show me uh, any work, whatever they call it, that doesn't have accountability, and I'll show you a movement that's not making disciples, okay? Uh, see John Miller, Jack Miller's World Harvest Mission, he said, I'm finding, as I get older, so much of my discipleship involves hurting people. And what he meant by that was speaking the truth in love to some of the areas that people are tender. They don't want to hear that their sin is actually hurting other people, okay? that their sin is actually defaming Jesus, that the thing that they're doing to their spouse isn't speaking well of Jesus and isn't honoring their spouse, the way that they're speaking to their children. He's like, and he wasn't saying hurt them in a, in a sinful way at all. He was, he was speaking purely as, I have to go in and I have to speak the truth in love to people. But I, I don't see discipleship happening any other way. But to speak the truth in love, you actually have to know people. You have to know the real stuff of their heart. And you have to see them in the real stuff and the real situations that provoke the real stuff of their heart. If you're not doing that every day, if you're only seeing it for an hour and a half, everybody's got their church clothes on, chances are you really don't know who they are. Chances are you're really not seeing it through discipleship. So you find another movement that's got gospel, community, mission, and accountability. I bet they're making disciples who can make disciples. Okay? If we're aiming at anything in Selma, if we're aiming at anything, we don't care if it's called Selma, but if we're aiming at anything and trying to identify mission communities, we're saying we're going to have to get small enough to be known. Small enough to really be able to obey the one another versus the scripture. Small enough to really be good family. Small enough to really know the idols of the heart that pop up in the real stuff of life. By the way, mission is a great way to surface idols in the heart because all of us would rather watch footy than help a single mom move on a Saturday, right? Right? Over and over and over. We would rather do the preference of, of self than selfless love for the benefit of another. But if you see that pattern over and over and over, one of the disciples in your community just always can't quite make it to anything sacrificial, but can always show up to the, the footy watching party. Um, hey, let's talk about that. What's going on there? You know, it seems like you're, you're, it always works out in the schedule when it's something you really want to do that's something you enjoy. Uh, when it's something sacrificial for the benefit of others, it just doesn't quite work its way to the schedule. What's going on, right? We, we don't know that unless we're living in a small enough accountable community that's actually got a mission, that's actually informed by the truth and love, which is the gospel spoken to each heart, conforming us to the image of Christ, into this image of mature love, Okay. That's really what a missional community is. I hope it's not controversial. I hope you say that's just a New Testament church. That's just doing fidelity to the clear teaching of the New Testament, that we're supposed to live this way. We can talk about all kinds of things. There are churches where people never, ever confess sin. You see, it's a really big church of a 1,000 people. Where do you confess sin? The scriptures are really clear, right? Confess your sins to one another. Where do you do that? There's, I mean, the Catholics are doing better than us on that. At least you can go into a booth and say something, right? It's like there's no place where you actually can obey a clear command to confess your sins to one another. Okay? There's no accountability, no community. 
Okay? Other, other pastors say, bear one another's burdens. But we live in anonymity, and we live pretending and performing as if we have our act together. And so we never share our burdens. Because it would be humiliating to let people know that we have burdens, that we have weakness. So we don't ever have the opportunity to bear one another's burdens because we don't we, we want to be transparent enough to share our burdens. Which is fundamentally a denial of the gospel that said we were so weak that we needed God to die. We were so insufficient. We had so much weakness. We need this massive, massive activity to happen to make us right. But we can't talk about a little small activity of weakness in a real-time situation. It's like, wow, we don't believe the gospel. You know, we can't do that in community. We can't share our burdens and say, guys, I'm really weak right now. Like, I can't even, I can't have anybody in my house right now. Can you guys host? I'm just tired. I just don't have it. I don't have it right now. Can you guys carry me for a little bit? Like, I'm weak. Can I be weak and you guys be bear a burden for a short time for me? Can, that, can you guys do that because we're a family? Right? How do you obey the scriptures if you don't know each other? How do, you, how do you obey the scriptures if you're not secure enough in the gospel to be weak, to confess sin, to, to admit, I need you and you need me? Okay? And God built it that way. Okay? And it's a good thing. And we'll get closer. We'll have more affection for one another when we act. We walk into that. Okay? So I say this and I'm passionate about it because I have experienced so much vibrant life together in these kinds of communities. When a group of people really get the gospel, really believe their identity is that of a family, really believe they're called to be on mission to those who don't know Jesus in their neighborhood, really start to live that way and start to go, I don't know how to do this. And, th- and I can't, I'm sharing the gospel with them. They didn't believe. Now what? I can't change their heart. And, or they came to Christ, now they're a huge mess. And it's like almost crazy. Now we have to walk with this person in this huge mess, right? Um, there's a lot that can be said. I want to I get a little bit more practical before we're going to have a lot of time for questions tonight because I know this, for some, may be crazy or new or uh, you just have practical questions and how this has worked out. And I want it to be as concrete as possible so that you have a sense for how this works out. But essentially... We looked at, the Soma family did, it predated me, I wasn't involved with this, but we looked at how do we teach people to live all of life in light of new identity together on mission? Because the scriptures also say, John 13, 35, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. That something about Christian love for one another is a testimony of the gospel. Leslie Newbigin said it is the apologetic of the gospel. Okay? People need to see Christians together loving each other. Somehow that communal thing. So nobody will say, just let me be mission, on mission by myself to my coworkers. Don't worry about it. Just let me do that. And it's like, well, you can't tell the John 13, 35 story by yourself. Okay? People have got to see this new reality that's breaking in. That is the church that's been created in Christ. It's a community of love. Okay? They're going to have to see it collectively to make sense of it. Because some of it's relational in nature. The way we forgive each other when we sin. The way we support each other. The way we encourage each other. They've got to see it in, in, in community. And so, um, at any rate, we tried to think through what are the life, what are the rhythms of every culture, time, and place? What are the things that every culture does so that we can try to sync up our lives as a community on mission of the people that we're sent to? So we can just get into the flow with our culture so we can display the gospel through our life together and so we can proclaim the gospel and word to those that we're sent to. And so, some of the rhythms uh, that have come up with are story formed. So, I know that's a little bit odd. For some people, what does that mean? It just means everybody's living within a dominant story. Okay, an American might be the American dream. In five years, if we can buy our own house and my wife can stop working, we go on two vacations a year, that's going to be the good life. 
That's my vision of human flourishing. That's what I'm driving at. That's the story I want to live in. That's what I'm putting all my energies toward. Okay, that's their story, right? And so all of us have that. Every culture has a vision of what story they're living in. It might be a comedy, a tragedy, a fairy tale, uh, you know, rags to riches story. Whatever it is, people live in light of story. Spend a lot more time making a case for that. I think as we did, yeah, it becomes fairly clear that you can't find a culture that doesn't. Um, then we talk about listening. This is prayer, listening to God. God, who are you sending us to as a, as a missionary people, as a family of, of love and service? Um, and also listening to the community that you go and serve. Listening to one another's story so you can speak the truth and love with intelligence to one another. Every culture sits, speaks, and listens. This is to talk about conversation with God and others. Okay? Every culture celebrates, right? Whether it's footy or whether it's some national holiday, whether it's Christmas or Easter or uh, any other thing, cultures are built around celebration. Birthday parties, whatever it is, every culture will find it in, in Brazil as quickly as you'll find it in, in, in Australia, you'll find celebration. And then every culture eats. Usually 21 times a week, everyone eats. And in, in Luke's gospel, it said that Jesus was either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. Throughout the entire gospel, that Jesus spent a lot of time in discipleship around the table. You want to make disciples, this is where I make most disciples, um, it's going to be around the table. There's also, we talked about bless. Every culture has some way of giving gifts or speaking words over one another, of encouragement, of thinking of others in love, whether it's two, two sweethearts in, in Paris, France, or it's um, in Australia, there's, there's this idea of, of gift giving, of, of encouragement that comes. Uh, eat, uh, yeah, and the last one is kind of recreate, which is really this idea of work and rest and play. This idea of recreation, kind of renewal, working, creating, resting, and renewal. Uh, every culture does that. There's like a vocation, there's vacation, uh, there's sport or recreation. Uh, but these are the rhythms of life and culture. And so we use these not as some sort of hard and fast uh, mandate as much as handles for new missional communities to try to think through how are we going to live together? And what are some of the things that people do in culture that we could do together with gospel intentionality? We could do as an encouragement to one another unto great fruitfulness. And so we'll help, we'll, we'll do things like this. Really, really simple, but I just want to make this concrete. Um, so I could just do November, December in the States, right? If I just wanted to come to my mission community real quick and say, hey, let's pray for a little bit. Let's figure out what we should do in November and December. I could be like, hey, you know what? It's, it's Christmas. A lot of people in California or Oregon or wherever, we're going to go, we're going to cut down our own Christmas tree together. We're going to invite some of these non-believing families to go with us. They like to do that too. They're, they're up for it. They, they, they don't worship Jesus, but they, they have a Christmas tree in their house. We're all just going to cut down a Christmas tree. We're going to do that kind of to celebrate, right? That's kind of something our culture does. It's really missional too, though, because we're going to invite this other family that doesn't know Jesus. We've been building a relationship with them. So we're going to kind of tie into this cultural celebration that happens. We're all going to go up for half a day, cut down a Christmas tree, drink some hot cocoa, you know, and then we're probably going to eat because we've got to eat, right? That'll happen on the way back. We'll stop at a restaurant, we'll eat, we'll build a relationship with each other, we'll encourage we're having fun, our kids are having fun. Maybe even we're intentional in the car, we're discipling our kids, we're, we're listening to their understanding of Christ and his coming, we're telling them the true story of Jesus his, his, in the Advent, you know, and we're just thinking through, how are we making disciples? How are we intentional 
in the things of life. We're going to eat. We're going to do that at Thanksgiving. We're going to do that at Christmas. We're going to give gifts. We're going to let our kids know that the reason we give gifts is because a son was given. Behold, a child was born. That Jesus came for us. And, and we have the perfect gift in him. We'll make sure we're, we're discipling that way. We may even give gifts to non-believers and tell them, hey, we're doing this as an expression because we've been given an amazing gift in Christ this time of year. So we just wanted to give you a poinsettia or we're going to give you this, you know, cookies or fudge or whatever we did. And here we are. And so we might go, you know, you know, play, some people play uh, football on, on after Thanksgiving or, you know, find ways to, to enjoy fellowship with one another. We're going to serve the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. And you, know, you can, over the course of two months, and it might only be six times you're going to get together as a community, but with intentionality and prayer, you're going to be about encouragement and about building each other up, about growing in all of life to become more like Jesus and about being on mission to people God sent to you or sent you to, to be to demonstrate the gospel and proclaiming the gospel so that many can, can know him and walk with him and be reconciled to him. And so um, this is a basic rubric. I could spend a lot more time on some of the practical matters. Um, I know that's, that's, a, that's a fairly uh, quick overview, but I really wanted to share a story of just a couple of different missional communities uh, so that you can kind of grab a couple of different concrete expressions and really hear that this is not a program it's not a, a one-size-fits-all. It's, it's very much a uh, dynamic, spirit-led process of saying, God, we believe there are things you want us to obey. We believe you're a good father and you're not sinister. You don't call us to things that are actually impossible. That there's a way to obey you where we live. There's a way to be the church where we live. It's, whether we live in a city center, suburbia, a rural community, there's got to be a way to be the church where we are. So God, what is that for us? And, and who are the people that, that you're, you're already at work in or that you're sending us to that you want us to go and live with and to, to minister to and to bless and serve and, and invite into our table and to ask them their story and to listen and to proclaim the gospel to? Who are those people, God? Would you show us who those people are? And we just want to keep showing up in those places. We want to show up for one another in, um, in, in spaces of, of really caring for and loving each other. And so... Another real quick thing, some of you might hear, wow, is this a mission community church that doesn't do Sunday? Are you saying chunk Sunday morning out the window and just do this? Or is this a house church thing? Um, what is this? Um, I'll say that, um, yeah, all 35 summer churches I'm aware of, uh, North America at least, and really all the ones that I'm aware of in Australia as well, uh, really have three discipleship environments they think are really important. And have different functions, but each, each function is very, is very essential. And so a church will have a worship gathering. We're really careful not to call it church because the church is people and it's just bad grammar, bad theology. <laughs> um, a worship service, right? Not church, it's a worship service. The church does this. Uh, we worship together in this place. We sit under preaching. Liturgies can be very Anglican. It can be all kinds of stripes of worship depending on the context and convictions of that, those people. Pretty traditional worship service, okay? Also, missional communities. We just talked about missional communities. And then we do something like DNAs, which are same-sex triplets, uh, three women with three women, three men with three men, for the purposes of discipleship, nurture, and accountability. So if you're on mission, you're going to need care yourself. You're going to need support and prayer. This will be open the scriptures. Often study the scriptures together. Do prayer together. Speak the truth and love to one another. We bear one another's burdens. We encourage and we support each other in DNA. And so in a given week, we might have three touches, right? Within a mission community. You might be there Sunday morning worshiping together, helping to serve the kids at the service, or sitting in the gathering. 
Um, meeting as a missional community in your mission. Let's say you were going to cut down the Christmas tree this week in, in that in a North American context. Um, and then you meet for DNA. And we're just going through Luke's gospel. We're talking about a real vagueness and how are you doing and how's that thing at work and who are you praying for and what's going on and this is happening. And, and it's, it's not formulaic. It's not mandated that if you don't do every space every week, somehow you're, you're missing it. It's, it's more just a way of life. And it, and it happens often. Um, and so that's, that's the basic gist of, of a missional community, um, or a church built on missional communities. Um, it's really not that radical. In some ways, it would be adding just a lot of intentionality to maybe a few of the spaces that already exist in your, in your church. Um, I'll give a couple of concrete examples. I'm thinking of um, a couple in Portland who planted a church, uh, Tim and Shannon Sears. They simply moved into an apartment complex. It had 16 units. And they just decided, we'll just, we don't know what we're supposed to do. We'll just pray. They're praying about what God might have them to do with their missional community. And they just decided to knock on all the doors of the people, maybe made a flyer. And they said, hey, on Sunday night, we're just going to have a barbecue. We're just going to have a cookout. 80% of their, their neighbors came. Right? They just all showed up. They were, they were there. They played games. They ate. They had fun. And, and actually, one of the, the not-yet-believers said, hey, we should do this again. Like, this is really fun. Like, why wouldn't we do this again? And we're like, yeah, yeah. Well, you guys, when do you want to do it? And they're like, well, Sunday night's like a really good time. Weekend's over. You know, nobody wants to cook on Sunday night because you're about to go back to work. And so it's kind of nice to do a potluck. But what if we just did next Sunday night? So they do next Sunday night. And it just becomes a series of Sunday nights where the apartment complex just meets down at 6 o'clock. And it's just like, we're going to have a meal every Sunday night. Okay? As they're doing that, they're building relationships. And, and relationships and discipleship, I think you'll find, they go from stranger to acquaintance. Uh, somebody's telling me, it's funny, I've gotten into some disparity. You guys can be the tiebreaker. Whether friend or mate is more intimate in Australia? Anybody? I thought, one, one woman told me that mate was like the deepest connection amongst Australians. Other people said, no, everybody calls everybody mate. Friend is actually deeper. What do you guys think? Friend, friend is deeper? It depends where you are. Okay, so let's say that yeah, for this context, mate is, is a good friend. Uh, friend is, uh, you know, your deepest pals, okay? Uh, you guys know better than me how this progression means, but this is the most intimate kind of human friendship. This is someone you, you really don't know. Um, what happens in, in discipleship of any kind, essentially a stranger becomes an acquaintance, let's say at the Sunday night barbecue. Uh, oh yeah, somebody, there was some girl that lived in that apartment. Now I actually know her name. I just call her an acquaintance. But when an acquaintance moves out of that space, and typically you have to move into a second sphere. So if you have a relationship that only exists in one sphere, um, just a barbecue, uh, it's good. But often discipleship of the gospel travels when you can actually move to a second sphere. So it's not only that um, I saw you at my barbecue, we discovered we really love um, shopping at farmer's markets. And so I actually invite you to go to the farmer's market. Now two ladies who also are at a barbecue are now by themselves at a farmer's market. Okay, two guys discover they like to rock climb. They were at a barbecue. Now they're rock climbing. So typically, acquaintances become friends when you move to a second sphere. Okay, you got a barista you're meeting, you're intentional with, you're talking to them every time you go in. As soon as that barista becomes more than just a service provider who's making a coffee and that you're just friendly to, and you actually learn because you listen enough about who they are to find that other shared interest that you guys have together, and you go do that, now you move from acquaintance to, to friend. Okay? And the gospel often travels on the lines of friendship or mateship more so than 
stranger acquaintance. Okay? God can do that on a plane. He can do all kinds of uh, ministry through acquaintances, uh, people you're just meeting. But often um, it happens this way. And so in that community, that's exactly what happened. People just started building relationships. So it was just a barbecue. But now they're hanging out in other things because they discovered there's things that they enjoy together. And they're just being intentional to invite people into that. Uh, it just builds over time. Eventually, there's enough trust. People know they're Christians. They've shared the gospel individually as they've had opportunities. They've been honest about, oh, yeah, you're a part of the church or whatever. Um, and eventually, they've had enough spiritual interest. They're saying, hey, there's this thing called the story of God that we do, which is uh, storing through the whole, the whole Bible story in 10 weeks. And so we just, we, you don't have to have a Bible. You don't have to know the Bible. In fact, people who don't know the Bible really will have just as much data to work with as those who don't. So it's not intimidating. You don't have to bring anything. Just show up and eat, and then we'll just go through the story. So you can kind of understand what the Bible, what's the story really all about? What, who is God? What has he done according to the scriptures? Do you want to, you want to sit through that? So their whole large portion of their entire apartment complex says, yeah, we'll do that. This is probably nine months in or however long they've built the trust. They've already shared the gospel individually. They've, they've built credibility. So yeah, I'll do that. And so um, they do. They have the story of God time for 10 weeks. And they work through the whole story of God. And this, this freshman at Lewis and Clark, which is super liberal, probably the most liberal uh, uh, you know, school in one of the most liberal in all in the United States um, is freshman who's in that apartment complex. Um, closet drug addict. Okay, he's freshman year in college, nobody knows he's like serious drugs. Okay, he's like syringes kind of drugs. Um, anyway, he totally meets Jesus. Okay, so his name's Matt. He trusts Jesus. Um, this other couple that was de church, they, they're young, married, no kids. They had not been in church since youth group. You know, it's like five years and they haven't even gone to church, but they're totally hearing the gospel again. They're seeing Christian community. They're, come back to the church, okay? Now, I want to tell you this because this is messy, right? So, so Matt, and I want to say this because I also believe this. Um, if, if your only goal was to see Christians mature, okay, let's say you didn't care about non-Christians. You're like, thank you for themselves, okay? It's horrible, but let's say that's where you're at. Even if that's where you're at, the best way to mature Christians would be to go on mission. Because them having to depend on the Holy Spirit to actually be on mission would be the thing that would raise them up in, in prayer, would raise them up in need, would raise them up into selfless care for the benefit of others quicker than just about anything else. And so it's exactly what happened in this community. Uh, Matt, he did trust Christ. I do believe he's regenerate. This is very gay, but he struggled, okay? Coming off hard drugs, okay? So three guys, actually one guy, um, it comes three guys. One guy gets a phone call in the middle of the night and Matt, is huffing and puffing and screaming and talking all really crazy, like hallucinating, say cops are chasing him through the woods in Idaho. It's a nine hour drive from Portland. And kind of tells him the park that he was at and he was going camping and did this thing, all this stuff. Clearly not in his right mind. And so you got this, this friend who hangs up the phone and is like, Matt might get shot by some cops in the woods in Idaho tonight. And calls two other guys in the street. He's like, what do you think we should do? And they're like, what, what can we do? We're family. Like this guy, this, we don't know, but it might be that he's in a very dire situation in the middle of the woods in Idaho. Either way, we've got to go find that park. We've got to go. Middle of the night, three guys are driving nine hours, and they do. They find Matt without a shirt on, like in the middle of, kind of in that area, um, and there were police around, and they weren't looking for him. There had been complaints, or people were worried, and, you know, he, he relapsed into drugs. And, and these guys are saying, no, like, not only are we going to share Christ with you, but when you come into the family, we're going to walk with you. We're going to walk with you through the real messy stuff that happens. And it's not going to be pretty, and it's not going to be easy. But, but Matt, they continue to walk with him. He continue to grow. He then married a Christian girl, and it's like pretty stable, like 
legit citizen, you know, citizen uh, in society. Like he's a he's a he's a Christian. He's he's doing well, and and God has graced him. He's continuing to mature and grow. And so, I just want to give you a, a picture of um, what one initial community did in a concrete terms. As, as you ask questions tonight, um, and we'll transition here. Uh, there's other perhaps concrete things we can we can get after. I already know some of the questions maybe. Uh, in terms of, man, it sounds like a lot of activity and it sounds impossible. Um, but I, hopefully we can, we can get after some of that. Um, but yeah, let's just do that. Let's open up the time and let's hear from you guys. What are, what are questions, comments, or thoughts you had as you kind of hear what was a very quick overview of, of mission communities and kind of theology that undergirds them? Fans off, so I think I can hear you now. There were. There were. So they were the only couple who lived in the apartment complex, but the rest of their initial community was involved. And so they pretty naturally, once they got going, I think initially it was just them with their, with their uh, apartment people, because they kind of started that barbecue that way. But then it was like birthday parties, rock climbing, hanging out, and they just started introducing the rest of their initial community to the apartment people. And it became a pretty natural relational thing. And then the initial community actually started coming to the Sunday night thing. Nobody cared. It wasn't like they were checking tickets at the door. It was just, it was a barbecue and other, other people in the apartment invited their friends that didn't live there. And it was just, it was just a known community dinner. And so, yeah, there were about six adults in that particular MC and only two that lived in the apartment complex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I wonder with it being a cruise, huh? is there a reason to bring people to like one-on-one? And also is there someone who leads that group, like a Absolutely. So there, there's some flexibility. Sometimes a DNA group might be two people. And it just it happens just to be the only thing that works from a scheduling standpoint or otherwise. Uh, so it's it's not so rigid that you know you can't have a DNA group without three. Uh, four or five tends to be that it just either takes a lot of time to actually spend meaningful connections with each person. Uh, some people dominate even in the small groups. You're going a bit deeper. So size on the high end is kind of ends up being two and a half hour meetings or, you know, just starts to go long. Um, three uh, is, is kind of a sweet spot. I think it, it does change some of the dynamics when, um, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about the four loves where somehow some people bring out different things than others, than, than one another. Sometimes a one-on-one uh, can be beautiful. God uses those as well. Uh, but sometimes different perspectives playing off each other can, can be a meaningful time. Uh, there is like a, Soma has a DNA 18-week study. I think there might be a shorter study. That uses, that's really used to start a DNA and kind of ground it. Very, very much gospel centrality and teaching people how to speak the truth in love, how to pray, how to study the scripture. It's, it's a real kind of establishing kind of study. Um, using uh, Tim Chester has a book called You Can Change, which has the four Gs, which are four big truths about God that you're probably not believing at any point that you're in sin and just helping people to have some, some handles for identifying uh, unbelief and sin and misconceptions about God that are leading into behaviors that are honoring God. So it's just some real basic sort of things that those groups work out together to grow gospel fluency and begin to love each other. Most DNA, I mean, DNAs are going to start with their story 
And yes, they're usually a, there's a, there's a leader. Yeah, so you're gonna have a, a mature believer who's mature enough to really facilitate that happening. And that leader, the first time you gather, probably gonna share their story, and they're gonna share it in a pretty transparent way with the real sense of the brokenness of their story and how Christ was sufficient to meet them there. So they're gonna go this high with authenticity, honesty. The rest of the group will usually come 70% of that. That immediately builds a sense of you know knowing one another. Um, some cultures, I know that probably happens quicker than others. We were talking about Brits earlier, and, and not to stereotype anybody, I don't know. Um, I was just told by an Australian, like, don't, don't throw anything at me. Uh, but, you know, some cultures are going to be more willing to be transparent, to say some really honest stuff about uh, their sin and the need for Jesus than others. But uh, to the extent that people can get honest. Um, uh, again, I talked about bearing burdens. Uh, how are we going to do that if we don't share our burdens? How are we going to do that if we don't really know some of the lies that we're prone to believe that Satan continues to hit us with, if we don't share some of that with each other, and we don't share family history and origin brokenness and all that, um, how are you really going to know how to care and love each other? Um, think about a family. A uh, family knows all that stuff because they lived it with you, right? Family knows your story. They, they, they watched it happen. And so sometimes I believe to be the church faithfully, we actually have to let each other in on, on our stories. Um, it's, it's a way of really knowing one another, seeing each other, and, and not seeing each other in abstraction, but the real stuff of who you really are and being known and so that we can love you as, as you are, not as you're projecting yourself to be or dr dressing yourself up to be. Uh, and if the gospel is really robust in the community, it's okay to be weak because our, our whole sufficiency is coming from Christ. All of our righteousness is from Christ. So any instance of weakness is just case in point of a much larger thing that we've already made and we've said, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I'm completely weak. Jesus said I could do nothing apart from him. That's, that's just, that's obvious, okay? So case in point, this is just one small data point on a really huge uh, spectrum of why we Jesus, okay? So anyway, yeah, DNA groups do need leaders, I think, to, to not just become, sometimes they'll devolve into just friend groups and they'll just hang out and just talk and they won't have much intentionality. Do you need a leader who's really focused on the spiritual aspects of leading? My wife, honestly, I'm not just saying this, she's my wife. I've seen, I think she's like the best DNA group leader I've ever seen because she'll, she'll, she goes to the same 18-week curriculum every time with the girls, and then she makes the girls lead. And a lot of these girls have never led. And she's like, oh, you're leading next week. Here's the study. you got a week to look at it. It's not hard. We're here. Bail you out. If you know, she just develops them over the whole time. She gives them confidence they can lead. They can study the scriptures more, teach others. Um, just really mobilize them. And I, I can't tell you, I mean, all three spaces are absolutely essential for different reasons. But I would say... And again, I'm coming back to accountability, but because of the intimacy of three, it's impossible to hide in a crowd of three. And when, when truth actually hit any community, hits somebody, and they're asked a question of like, what about you? What are you doing with that in your life? Um, I just, it's where I see the most fruit. That's where I actually see people grow um, in DNA. And so, um, and then they get on mission and, and God uses that as well. So um, yeah, that's, that's DNA groups. Uh, what else? What other questions? Yeah, so that was tricky in the sense that I do think Christians are now empowered by the Spirit when they trust in Christ. So it's, it's a little different than the historic example now. Um, so I think we have the Spirit as soon as we are a Christian. And, and if, assuming the mission community is already, you know, grew by a small band of Christians. We've got the Spirit. 
uh, but we want to be directed by the Spirit. We want to be led of the Spirit. And so, yeah, I think the most beautiful missions are, are when God really just makes it clear that there's a, there's a particular people, a particular place. Um, I think Christians are impatient and hate the ambiguity. And I'll be honest, in missional community life, there's a lot of ambiguity. And Christians that want control, and they want structure, and they want a clean start and stop, and they want everything to fit really tightly and predictably. Um, sometimes that, that's a scary reality, but walking with the Spirit, I, don't, I just don't know that He conforms to our, our timetables. I don't know that He conforms to our agenda. Um, I think He's been called a wild goose. He's been called a wind that blows, and we don't know where it comes from and where it goes. Um, Holy Spirit kind of gets to do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Um, but I, I, I do think uh, a community taking the time to listen in prayer and to be directed by the Lord um, is, is worth it. It's worth the time. Um, but I love the idea of, of being active, prayer walking areas. Let's say you're called to this very proximity, you know, you live in this neighborhood in Melbourne. I mean, it's like getting out and looking around and prayer walking. And like, and it's an active pressing in, not an apathy of like, hey, maybe we'll pray every once in a while. And if six months or a year, God tells us maybe we've got something, we'll, maybe we'll get around to it. Uh, it's, it's a real leading in and a, and a real listening, a real intent to, to know and discover um, what God's up to uh, with, with, with your mission. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think um, there is time, but it seems like six, six weeks sometimes, three weeks. I mean, God can just start to show you slowly. And that might, it might change over time. It might be that you kind of thought it was over here. You had a person of peace that God had given you. But over time, something changes, and you actually met this other person, this other situation became clear, and just continue to walk and follow. But um, yeah, yeah, I think prayer is absolutely the starting point. Yeah, what else? Yeah, in the back. I'm not saying what a worship service would look like. Today. I heard I'm having trouble conceptualizing at the moment what happens in the NC. Mm-hmm. What are the, how often, when, who, yeah. what happens there? Sure. What yeah. Yeah, so the biggest threat to an MC is really that Christians would just gather in a home and have a Bible study and call it an MC. Okay? And that happens. I'll be honest. In every church I've ever seen doing MCs, that happens. Okay? So some MCs are really, just, are really Bible studies. Um, but I think the best way to actually embody and live out a, the sentness of the church is to, in my opinion, not even to meet in the living room um, all the time. There may be times when you do. In fact, I got an email in my inbox for our mission community. They're meeting twice. Uh, once for a Christmas party this this um, this month, another time just for a meal together, just fellowship and, and encouragement, catching up, prayer. Maybe they'll open the scriptures. Uh, DNAs are going. You know, this is often weekly. Some of them are every other week, depending on word conflicts. Um, but our mission community meets every week in our mission. So our mission is is currently a um, a legal immigrant Hispanic community, um, and it, it's Frisbee Court. So it's literally just a cul-de-sac. Is our mission all the families that live on this cul-de-sac? And um, we, we just, we land there. We actually show up on Frisbee Court once a week. Right now it's Tuesday nights for tutoring. We tutor, uh, we listened, so we, we met, we hung out, we listened. And actually my wife was asking a Hispanic mom, like, what do you guys need? Like, what do you guys, what's up? You know, and she just said, hey, there used to be a homework club for all the kids. Uh, we don't, we can't really teach them English. And, and the guy who's doing it is a great guy, but he moved. Uh, would you guys start up the English second language, homework help? For our kids, because we really want them to, to be progressing and assimilating American culture and all that. So yeah, yeah, we can start a homework club. So now it's just Tuesdays on Frisbee Court with our mission people that we're sent to doing homework. In the summer, we try to do reading. We're like, hey, reading intervention is huge. If we can just read all summer, that'll be great. They'll come in the next year even better. 
kids didn't really want to read, <laughs> so they didn't show up. And so we pivoted, prayerfully. Uh, we started a soccer camp. So we have some really great soccer players in our, in our church. One guy could do skills, a couple guys could do skills training, so we just did uh, soccer camp in the summer. And it was like four nights for two hours, soccer every night, and the final night, big barbecue, give them a certificate, invite their parents, you know, have a barbecue, tell them, hey, you completed the skills training, did awesome, we made custom t-shirts, it was just like soccer camp, and they're basically already asking for another soccer camp, so we'd probably do that maybe twice a year, like uh, offsetting, uh, tutoring's happening, uh, there's a woman in, our, in that community as well who has a pop-up restaurant, her name's Rosa, and, uh, and so some people go and just have meals we we're having trouble connecting with the adults. It's really easy to connect with kids. And the adults go to this meal, just have ta tacos and tamales and stuff. And so some of the, the crew that lives right by there will drop in and just have meals, sit on tables and, and eat, eat with folks. Um, saw another email was really encouraging for MC. Some of the kids are actually coming to our worship gathering um, with, with uh, a couple in our church. And they, he's asked them to go to his soccer game. Like he plays on a rec league. Will you come watch me play? You know, and they gone off to watch him play, you know, and that, again, moves from acquaintance to friend. It's like, oh, you care about me. Like, you're, this isn't just this program clock in and clock out. Like, we have a relationship. It, it bleeds into other aspects of our lives, and I really want to know me, and so, um, I think, I think the initial community should primarily meet amidst the people group you feel called to, once you have that identified. I think you should just meet there. Uh, it, it's immense mission. Christians are, I'll be honest, a lot of Christians are reluctant to do that. A lot of Christians would rather spend a year hovering and talking about mission. Um, but it, it's a discipline and faith to step out and actually get amongst the people God, you feel God's leading you to and start to just, and it might take a while, okay? We, that, I'll use that cul-de-sac example. We were literally showing up to a cul-de-sac. There's no picnic table. There's no play structure. There's nothing but cars parked along a cul-de-sac, and we're strangers, okay? That's not a really warm lead in most uh, relational setups. Um, but we felt like the Lord led us there, and we just showed up, and the kids have some soccer balls. We just start kicking the soccer ball with three kids. And then 15 kids come out. And then we play a full-on game of soccer on concrete for an hour. Uh, and we just come back next week. And we just come back next week. And then someone invites us to uh, a, a barbecue they're going to have. And we come to their barbecue. And then we invite them to something. And, and everybody comes. And then they, my wife finds out about tutoring. We start tutoring. So it, it, I don't know that it's always, um, I don't know if it's that easy. But I, I would defy a group of people to go to the same place 52 weeks in a row, prayerfully. Uh, to the people God feels them called and not find some inroad. Um, and so some of it is really showing up and showing up amidst the people that, uh, that you feel like God may be leading you to. So, yeah. But I like mission community meeting on the mission. Yeah, I think that's, that's critical. Oh, well, let me say this real quick. Although there have been seasons when in a mission community, and I've got one right now that I coach, where the men aren't leading well at home at all, um, their wives are really pulling double duty, uh, their kids are, are not being led as well as they could, there's just some discipleship issues that have surfaced in just the, the Christians that are there. And they're doing a six-week study on like parenting and like sacrificial service and just like some of the core issues that have just surfaced. And they're just opening the Bible, meeting in the living room, and the mission is actually like some of these guys right now. You know, like their discipleship is front and center because it's it's cratering. It's 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 impacting even their ability to be on mission, it's impacting their ability to be healthy witnesses to community. Uh, and so yeah, there will be times when the mission community is very intentionally meeting for a season, uh, for a purpose. Um, even to be grounded in some of these things when you're first starting. You know, everybody doesn't just immediately flip a switch and get all of this. There's, a, there's an establishment time. You have to do some real teaching, some real training. 
Um, and so at times the initial community would be really intentionally uh, pressing in uh, for that purpose. Yeah? How deep do you like your missional community to care? At what point do you split and plan the church? I love missional communities with about six or eight people um, because there's a missional urgency. There's enough room in a living room for more people to be involved. Scheduling gets exponentially more complicated when you try to do it with 20 people. Then there's the awkwardness of like 16 of us can, four of you can't. Can we just do it anyway? Sorry, you guys won't be a part of it. Um, there's just it gets it gets more complicated with size, uh, depending on you know architectural realities in the context, like how big are our living rooms functionally. Um, uh, but I, I do, when communities get big, mission usually takes a dive. Um, those that are quick processors and extroverts usually start to dominate. Introverted people just kind of fade. Uh, accountability starts to diminish. Talk about the looting. You know, once you just pouring more and more water in and people are getting a little more anonymous. Um, so yeah, I, I love six to 12. Um, but when a group is at, and, and it's not a, a week to week pull the trigger because you don't always have a leader ready. Just because two extra people showed up one night doesn't mean they're in, you know, forever. And so it's, it's a dynamic you watch. And so when I'm in coaching, I always am asking questions about really who's your core right now and who's your fringe. So there's always fringe people. They show up once every two months. You don't need to bake plans you know, with them in mind necessarily. Um, and so, yeah, but it, when you start to have a core of like committed 15, it's like, okay, do we have to, we have a whole system of, of, of always have apprentice leaders sort of in, in process being developed and being handed leadership within the missional community. Um, they have leadership development plans to grow. And so we're trying to always be ahead of the curve so that when you are in a position to multiply, we have people who are you know, sent. Um, that's ideal when that person has a vision for what they're sent to, and they can call people to a mission, best case scenario, and others are called into it and feel they want to follow them. Um, but yeah, size matters a lot, I think, in MCs. And uh, a community that stays big for too long usually um, falls out of mission and never, and sometimes never gets back into it. It, 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 it atrophies and it, it breaks down. So, yeah. Yeah, small, the smaller the kids, in some ways, the harder, right? Like, you have one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, that, that, that could be a challenging season of MC life. Um, I have an 11-year-old, and one of the reasons I absolutely love Mission Community uh, life is that it's an integrated life of ministry with my wife. It's an integrated life of ministry with my daughter. So I take my daughter, Lily, to tutoring quite often, and she's really able to help quite a bit with the kids. And I'm, as I'm driving with her, to tutoring, I'm talking to her about these kids, we're praying for the kids, we're talking about why we're doing that. She's very integrated, we do soccer, she actually plays competitive soccer, so she's always out there playing with these Hispanic boys. She's actually getting better at soccer because she plays soccer with these Hispanic boys who are really good. Um, and she's totally, she's just involved. Actually, all of our daughters are involved in like that, all that stuff. Um, I don't take them to tutoring, the youngers, uh, but I take them older. Um, so at, at that age, you know, you can do that. We had a, I remember a high school, kid in, in Portland who I think was really well discipled all through high school by being an MC with adults. And they treated him like an adult. They gave him real responsibility and real ministry to do. And he just, you know, he thrived. Okay. Now babies, you know, one-year-old, two-year-old. Um, we've, we've seen that as an opportunity to serve one another, to be good family. 
So sometimes I feel for my brother Nathan sometimes. He tells me, I, I coach him monthly, and it's like, you know, he has a homogenous situation. Lots and lots of families in the exact same life stage with little babies. That's really hard, actually. Uh, ideally, you would have empty nesters who love babies and are willing to, like, help, right? So give them a date night. Like, one of the most beautiful things I've seen in this community is, like, we had this single woman who was divorced. She was uh, 50 years old. She loved our kids. She was like, I'll give you guys a date night. She goes, yeah, please, go out. I love your kids. And our kids loved her. And, and she would keep our kids once a week so Caroline could go on a date night, right? And so that was the church being family. Um, it was a testimony to our unbelieving neighbors as well. We would, I mean, we weren't trying to brag about it, but they're like, who's, you know, they, they actually met Linda. They knew her. And we were like, oh, yeah, they're like, she's so great. Like, and, and, you know, finds out we're not even paying her. And they're just like, what? Like, give me a reason for the way that you live this way. You know, like, why are you doing this? And so um, I think you have this opportunity to serve one another. I was even thinking, I was talking to someone the other day. They said, you know, we have some married couples with babies. And then we have some single girls. And, um, you know, figuring out how do these older women really minister to single women? How do these single women maybe minister and babysit to, to give date nights or to help? Or how does, how does each one bear one of those burdens so that what I do think is dysfunctional is when women or whoever has just decided to be the child care person, they can't really ever be a part. They're just off on their own, pulling double duty, not being encouraged, not getting to participate. So for a loving family, we've got to figure out how everybody's going to share the love and everybody's going to be involved and everybody's valuable. Everybody's being discipled and everybody's being encouraged. And so uh, it takes creativity and I, and, and I like age diversity when you can have it because sometimes the stages of life come in handy as you think about um, serving one another. Um, now, I've seen in other ways too where missional communities will meet more like in the afternoon. So some of our missional communities with a lot of kids will meet on Sunday afternoon because it's not a school night. School nights can be very hectic with families if your kids are in school. And um, families, dad's off work, mom's off work. And so a lot of their mission happens like 3 p.m. Like that's when their mission community's out. Um, actually, we do soccer. It's typically Sunday afternoons. We go to Frisbee Court. Um, it's just when the families are all kind of available. Both parents can help. Kids can be watched and integrated in with what's happening. Um, but yeah, it really ebbs and flows. DNA, we do DNA in our house. The other couples don't have kids. We do. We put our kids down, and they come over for DNA later at night. They come over at 7.30 put our kids down, we start DNA with our kids asleep. So sometimes you're thinking that way. Is there only one family with kids? Can, it, can something meet at their house after the kids are down? I mean, we've done that lots. At different seasons, we had other missional communities do childcare for another missional community to serve one another, and they rotated. And it was like, hey, when you're meeting and you really got some significant things happening, we'll come and keep all the kids, and you guys can focus. Um, we did that for a season, you know, so there's a lot of prayer and creativity that goes into to doing it, but I would certainly do it from the lens of good family and making sure that it's not somebody's just taking it for the team, carrying the whole load, and everybody else is like, sorry, it sucks for you, but we're going to do this over here, so, yeah. That's a great question. Yeah, so hopefully Sunday sermons uh, are very much built around um, 
the gospel, right? So depending on your tradition, we, we very much try to preach Christ from every text. We try to remind people of the gospel often. When we come to the table in communion every week, we're rehearsing the gospel. Often we'll, we'll, we'll share a gospel need, why you really needed Jesus this week, and let the rest of the community speak the gospel back to you in communion. Um, so the gospel is being rehearsed all the time. DNA groups are built on, uh, like that 18-week curriculum I, re- I referred to, is really mostly these three columns, uh, really grounding people at the convictional level in the gospel. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. What you just answered there is what in a sense the kind of your believers are doing to do that. Uh-huh. And I guess my question is, I'm you know I'm not part of that group of people. I'm you know a, a believer in my you know religious context. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Are you talking about other believers at this point? Yeah. Yeah. No, so DNA groups are not with clergy, so that would be actually women doing that with one another. Sure. It's someone's got to set that sort of up. So yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so I would say a DNA group, and in most, a lot of churches, I've been a part of churches that had no formalized DNA, but yet Christians were getting together. Uh, actually, every church I've ever been in, uh, we got together for breakfast early in the morning with other men for something like DNA. Um, nobody, nobody said we couldn't do it. Actually, if you told clergy that you were doing it, they'd be like, that's awesome in most, ca- most cases. And so most, most situations, you'll have a green light to do that if you have women around you and you just say, hey, we're going to be intentional. Let's get together open the scriptures, hear each other's story, care and nurse, encourage each other. Um, so that, I think that happens. Um, communion for us, and this may be low church, this may be offensive to things, I don't know. Um, we actually do communion. When I was describing communion, we do that uh, in, in initial community. And so it is everyday disciples. Uh, there may not be any vocational clergy present at all. Uh, there are people who know the gospel. They're at a table. Uh, Jesus said, when you're eating, do this and remember me. Bread and wine. This is what, it, retell the story. This is who you are. This is who, who, who made you. Uh, so those things are all in everyday life, in my mind. Um, but I, I guess I'm, your question, though, is, uh, am I hearing you? I want to do all this, but my church isn't set up this way. How do I get, how do I fuse in and, and apply some of these things? Is that, is that kind of what you're getting after? Well, I mean, in my personal situation, I'm not part of any institutional church. Okay. Yeah. Used to be for 30 years. Sure. And not anymore. So, you know, that's the summary of what you're Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I, w- I would absolutely encourage you to be in an institutional church. Um, I mean, I, and I don't know your story, I don't know all the background, but I do think all Christians should be submitted to local elders, and I do think you should be connected and identifiable within a local body. Um, and I would encourage you towards that. Um, so I don't know. I don't like I said. I don't have a grid for uh, Christianity apart from that. I don't know if the New Testament does. Um, and so I say that as gently as possible. But I would encourage you to to join in with other believers and to be sort of family to identify that no, I'm committed to you and you're committed to me and let's live this life together. Uh, apart from that, I don't know how you live fidelity to any of these things. 
uh, like I mentioned on the front. Um, I think the, the church is God's only plan for being a Christian in the world. It's his only plan for growing us up to maturity. It's his only plan for displaying the gospel for the world. And so um, you can do it with loosely affiliated relationships that are a bit organic, um, but I just haven't ever seen that be God's best. Um, and so I would invite you to, uh, to do that, to, to yoke up with people, to be committed to them as family and to be submitted to elders, to be in God's visible church. Um, I just think that's, um, in love, I think that's what the New Testament calls you to. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you, um, explain how your worship services work? Like, do mission, different missional communities get involved with it? Is there someone that runs them and organizes them? How does it work? Yeah, so, um, you know, in, in most of our churches, we believe that, um, an elder is somebody who's made disciples and has managed their own household well and is therefore given more responsibility to manage the whole house. So all of our elders are leading missional communities. Um, often elders that are freed up vocationally have bandwidth and time to then coach other MC leaders. And so typically we have elders or staff who are then coaching MC leaders. Uh, we do trainings on different intervals, sometimes uh, quarterly. Uh, we have monthly coachings with each MC leader, really helping them move forward, helping them be resourced, encouraged in the work. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of attention. I'll just say this. If you're going to go after churches, missional communities, you're going to double down on leadership development like never before. Because the bar of Bible study in your home, you know, just here's a discussion guide, just reading questions, keep your house kind of clean, you know, put the cats in the garage, whatever. Um, that, that's a pretty low bar, but what we're talking about is a pretty high bar. And it takes a tremendous amount of development to have missional community leaders who are able to do that. And so um, I spend a ton of time with leaders, and I think it's I think it's the most valuable resource. I think it's the vocation of a pastor, or of Ephesians 4, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, uh, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So I think primarily my job is to sit and equip people to do the work of ministry, to lead other disciples into mission. And so lots and lots of time spent with them, understanding their needs, development, what they what they need, and then coaching them, helping them. But that may not be your question. Yeah. So is that what you do on a Sunday, on a Sunday service? No, no, no. No, so I'm, I'm freed up as an equipper. I'm a paid equipper in the church, so vocational staff. And so our vocational staff is one of our primary responsibilities of equipping, coaching, resourcing, encouraging mission community leaders, some of which are staff, most of whom are working other jobs full-time in the world. Um, and so we're, we're coming to resource them, encourage and equip them. Uh, so that happens usually, like businessmen that are out, I drive to where they are to make it convenient for them. Some of them live 20 minutes, or they work 20 minutes away. Often I'm driving 20 minutes away, and I'm meeting right next to their work, and coaching them for an hour, an hour and a half on a lunch break, and then going back. Or I'm meeting with a couple uh, early in the morning before they go off to work. Or on a Sunday afternoon when they are off work, we'll meet for coaching. But uh, yeah, it's, it's built around uh, when they're able, they're available. And then I make myself sort of flexible to try to give as much time as I can to, to them. My question is a little bit around the Sunday services and how missional communities buy into that. Um, do they have any involvement or do they just end up rocking up and, and leaving? Like, how is the community formed around what happens on Sunday? Is there broader involvement than just you as the pastor? You mean the, the missional communities engage in Sunday in a meaningful way? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, different missional communities will host the gathering sometimes. Meaning, like, we, we see it as the church is a family. So who's going to host all the newcomers? Someone new comes, who's going to go and introduce themselves? 
So in the past, we've had mission communities that are just slated. Like, hey, this is your week to host the gathering. What that means, we're a church plant. you got to set up chairs. There's set up, tear down. There's newcomers. And there's, you're going to be the one who welcomes all the newcomers and gets them introduced to the kind of the next step of assimilation. Uh, you might also be serving in kids. So our kids' ministry is a rotation of MCs that serve the whole church in children's discipleship. So they're involved in that way. Often the, the mission communities that are in the gallery will take communion together. We'll talk about taking communion in community. They'll do that together. Uh, yeah, so the MCs are somewhat visible uh, in a Sunday space. Uh, some, there are people in our church who are not an MC for a season or at all. They're new or they're not there. Um, and they're, they're engaged in Sunday as well, but they're not, they're, they're sort of either considering MC life or they've got some barrier, uh, internal or external, that makes it difficult for them to, to be a part. But yeah. yeah. Other questions? Um, I work alongside churches and parking. Uh, can you offer some reflections around uh, maybe an established church, some try to get a sense of, oh, what the mission community look like for me, they form one within an existing community, and what that does for revitalization, maybe positives and negatives. Yeah. I can imagine some good stuff happening, I can imagine some kickback. Mm-hmm. Um, would love to hear some of your reflections around that. Sure. And, and tomorrow night's going to be fo- mostly focused on transitioning. So if a church wanted to move from another way of being organized to a church being organized around mission communities, what would that look like? So we'll spend a lot more time tomorrow night on that. But for tonight, uh, yeah, I've seen some uh, – I tell you how it usually goes, okay, when only one little pocket is going to do that. And the leadership isn't really bought in. They're just saying, hey, you can try it. Knock yourself out. Um, what traditionally happens, uh, if it's a leader who's, who's able to lead – does a good job. Um, usually it grows, usually it's really successful, and usually it actually becomes a problem. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever run Microsoft and Windows together. There used to be this, this thing called Parallels, where if you wanted to run a PC program on a Mac, you get Parallels and you, you filter it through. It slows your computer down horribly. It's like the most miserable experience ever. I do think trying to be in two models at the same time over time becomes that, because the realities of what you're calling people to are so radically different that it becomes almost like friendly fire. I'm, so, I'm mixing on metaphors, but you know, the programs need volunteers, they need all these things to run, and the MC's out on mission, and they're spending tons of time, so it's not like people aren't committed, and they're not giving their time sacrificially, it's that their time is going elsewhere, and so then start to have gaps and volunteer base over here, and it's like, wait a minute, we like the MC idea, but we don't like the idea that now this isn't running, um, it, it just starts to create a lot of, of friction. And so we advise churches whether to transition or not. It's, uh, while you might transition in uh, ingredients, meaning slowly over time, but only to do so if you're doing so wholesale, if you're moving towards a complete transition, not as, not as just another program running with several other programs, so to speak. Uh, we've just seen it go bad. I've seen guys, um, I've even seen uh, mega churches that are higher they have lots of programs. They've hired an MC guy to run what they think is a program, which is MC, and it blows up and it grows and there's three and there's four MCs and it just starts to like tear at the seeds of the vision and the DNA of the church and seeing that guy get fired and like, I mean, I've just I've seen it go really poorly. Um, and so uh, we'll talk more about that tomorrow night, but I do think uh, unity at the leadership level, the elder level, um, and a decision to say, no, this is our, these are our convictions from our gut as to what we're going and, and how, how we're going to be the church uh, is, is, is pretty important more than that uh, we're going to be running two parallel programs uh, within the same church. I just haven't seen that go well. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, so for my local church? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so there's, there are several uh, Soma churches that are financially sustained as, as autonomous. They started the church plants, but they're now established churches. And so they're probably paid just like any other church. The church uh, members of the church give, you know, tithe and give to the church. And there's a church budget, and elders and others allocate resources, be responsible, basically figure out what staffing they can actually uh, maintain uh, financially to, to serve the church. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's essentially how, I mean, I guess in that sense, it would be just like any other uh, a, a financially sustained church, um, tithes and offerings. Um, yeah, that's... Just if I can answer the question, how uh-huh. does that work in relation to keeping the numbers down so it's, it's faithful to the, the Um, yes, yeah, so um, other, other leaders that are unpaid as well, is that what you're saying? No, no, what I'm saying is that the mission community is all about keeping it smaller and intimate, mm-hmm. um, and as opposed to a certain size, I think you suggested that it's probably a good idea to send people out mm-hmm. rather than have it in the flow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just thinking pragmatically, um, if I'm a part of a mission church, a community, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I typically yeah you won't be able to um, sustain any vocational staff with with ten people um, in most in most cultural contexts. Um, and so usually mission community leaders are not paid. Um, they're they're usually people giving of their time. And so in a large church, I mean, you think about a church of fifteen twenty. Uh, mission communities, they may only have one or two staff, and so the vast majority of the mission community leaders have other jobs, but they're, they're believers, they're mature enough to make disciples, lead others into the mission, and so they do so, um, you know, as, as a, an unpaid uh, leader, um, and so, um, yeah, they're not, now, there are church plants, there are church plants that start as one missional community with the intent of multiplying and becoming a, an autonomous, sustained church. And often those will have external funding for a season. And it typically takes, in church planning, three to five years to become internally sustained. And, it, and I think in a, in a missional community church, you should err more inside of five years because it is a slower model than an attractional uh, church model in terms of financial viability. And so typically, yeah, if, if someone's planting a church, uh, they're going to be raising external funds to, to begin that work and to continue to give full attention to, to the multiplication and advancement. So, yeah, that's how most of our church plants start. With ex- some help, external funding as they as they as they plan. Mm-hmm. What else? Yeah, are we? we oh, we're, are we over time? We have five minutes. Oh, one more question. Okay, yeah, one more question. 
And, and again, tomorrow night will be all about transitioning. So if, if you want to come back and you're really seriously considering what a, a big transition might look like, if this is a totally new idea, we'll spend the entire time on these principles of transition. Sorry, I'll get you, but it was over here first. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I've gotten a grasp on what numbers look like, because I guess I'm just looking at the model, looking at uh, you know, the show community groups, like you said, like six to eight. When it multiplies, how do, as it gets bigger, how do, how do the proper people stay connected if I can put it that way? Um, it just seems like it just, from what I hear, it just seems like it just keeps growing outward, and I'm just trying to figure out how it still kind of stays connected in deep. Yeah, I'm not saying that. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's good. That's helpful. DNA groups are a real um, connector. Yeah, so that's going to be one for sure that people are remaining connected, not getting lost in the big thing before it multiplies, that kind of thing. Um, usually people, Christians that are fairly, you know, fairly committed. There, there is always a committed core, and then there's usually a fringe crew. Sometimes the fringe becomes more committed, and now you're starting to really realize this does need to multiply. Um, hopefully that's a short-term problem, not a long-term problem. Um, if, 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 you know, if, if it is a long-term problem, yeah, you're probably going to see uh, people get spin, spun out, you know, because they're just not connected to the thing. It's too big, can't fit in the living room, um, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, you, you have to be attentive to that. My main quality control on that is the, the monthly coach, coaching time with MC leaders, getting a lay of the land for what the group dynamics are currently experiencing. How big is this group? Is it consistently that big? Who's the apprentice? Is there another mission that may be sent? Um, are there other things that can be done creatively? I've even seen missional communities kind of multiply before they multiply and, and be meeting uh, in the same house, uh, but kind of having two different conversations uh, with, with people. Uh, I've seen other creative things happen. Um, but yeah, long term, you're hopeful that it's not month after month that this group is just massive and people are, are falling through the cracks or getting lost. Yeah, you've got to be really attentive. Yeah. What else? Maybe one more. Sorry, you had one more. Uh, my question is kind of two layers. It has to do with what you said about the four cornerstones of the entity structure. The gospel. So, first part of the question is how do you, obviously, you outreach the people through doing the mission piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's so good. Yeah. Uh, third. Third part. Here we go. Yeah, so the first is what happens when someone comes to Christ? What do you, what do, you do? Um, I actually love when this happens. I think we probably all do. Uh, it's, it's amazing when God calls someone to themselves. Um, we integrate them right into the initial community. And it's what's amazing is if they've never been in a, a church person before, uh, this becomes their very first vision of what the church is. And because they've already seen the church in action, if they saw the church on mission, serving them and loving them for a season, this is kind of their default. They just think this is what the church is. Um, we think it's also what the New Testament displays the church is. So they see continuity, and they actually don't have a category for, for a pew warmer or a person that just sits and listens to a sermon. That's their whole Christian experience. Um, they don't get that. They're just like, no, no, we live as a community, and we share meals, and we share life, and we love, and we pray for people, and we go out and serve. And this is 
being a Christian, you know? And so they're just integrated into the, into the community. Um, as soon as they are, you're absolutely right. There's so much work to do to, to ground them in the faith. So yeah, in a DNA group, NMC life, so much work to continue to instruct them in the scriptures. Um, you know, Paul says, yeah, I didn't neglect daily from house to house and in the synagogue to get you a full counsel of God. I sat with you, I trained you, I taught you. Um, and so yeah, you're spending a lot of time discipling them in the community. So it does, it's not a new program. They're, they're just in the community. It's always been about discipleship. Uh, but now they're, they're new and they're, they're starting ground level. It's amazing the energy that injects in the community. They talk about like payday or a payoff. And Christians like this, God bless what we're doing. We're more energized than ever to be the church, be on mission. Yes, we want to be attentive to this person. We want to see them grounded. We want to help them make wise choices. Sometimes they've got all sorts of complications with the way that they formerly live. Maybe their roommate situation is a really bad situation or they're we're living with, you know, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or there, you know, there's all kinds of things now to walk with them through of like, man, you got to pray about that. What do you think Jesus would call you to do in light of sort of your new faith and your new life and, and what you know to be his will for your life now? And so lots of time, but life together in community, uh, working out sort of what it means to be established. Uh, you talk about what happens if people are losing heart and they're losing motivation, the missional community is not effective. Um, I think from a coaching standpoint, if you're, look, if you're kind of in a situation or you're in that community, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of questions to be asked to understand what is going on and, and sort of some of the things that are happening. Uh, maybe there's lies that are being believed, you know, just about, you know what, fatalism, people don't come to Christ, like, you know, people just, whatever, it just doesn't happen, you know, or, or, or um, you know, what, what can we do, or fear of man, like they're not willing to share their faith because they're afraid of rejection, or maybe there are going to be so many different, or they're not a community of love, right? They're selfish with their time, they're selfish towards one another, they don't really have a burden or a heart for those who don't believe, they don't care about their community, um, and now you're starting to just kind of gently go after those things that are, that are actually impediments to them um, being on mission or, or being a witness in, in, in the church of the community, and so... Um, it just takes a lot of discovery to find out why that is and to be walking with that group. Sometimes it's really earnest Christians who are godly people. They really want to do the right thing, uh, but there, there are tactical or like strategic things or there's just like practical things, life stage, or, or they're mourning, or there's something. There's just complicating things, and so we want to have a lot of grace as well and not beat people up. This is not a new law by which Christians are justified. They're justified solely on the work of Christ. And so there's a lot of grace for people and a lot of encouragement of, hey, it's okay, keep going. And if one of the reasons the worship gathering is so important, because when one MC is really struggling, sometimes two other MCs are sharing stories of what God's doing, and they're like, you know what, I remember when some of that stuff was happening for us, or I believe it can in the future. And so it's really encouraging <laughs> to be reminded, God's really at work over here, let's continue to pray, let's continue to do, do the right thing, trust Him, continue to be a community of love. And I think that's, that stuff that's happening over there can happen over here. And so uh, seeing the, the bigger church sometimes helps uh, with discouragement as well because you realize um, it might just be a real local seasonal thing that's going to change. And we'll just hopefully see God's grace to, to move us towards greater fruitfulness in the next season. So.